0: Hello, I'm Abram Van
1: And I am Joanne Diaz.
0: And this is Poetry for All.
1: Today, we are going to focus on a very famous poem by Queen Elizabeth I, titled On Monsieur's Departure.
0: Would you be willing to read that for us, Joanne?
1: Yes, I will. On Monsieur's Departure. I grieve and dare not show my discontent. I love and yet am forced to seem to hate. I do, yet dare not say I ever meant. I seem stark mute, but inwardly do prate. I am and not, I freeze and yet am burned, since from myself another self I turned. My care is like my shadow in the sun, follows me flying, flies when I pursue it, stands and lies by me, doth what I have done. His too familiar care doth make me rue it. No means I find to rid him from my breast, Till by the end of things it be suppressed. Some gentler passion slide into my mind, For I am soft and made of melting snow. Or be more cruel, love, and so be kind. Let me, or float or sink, be high or low, Or let me live with some more sweet content Or die and so forget what love e'er meant
0: That's fantastic
1: My students love this poem they really what do they do. love
0: about this poem?
1: Okay, well, uh, I, I share this poem with students in, like, a survey of English poetry that goes from, like, 1500 to 1700, right? And when I prepare students for Queen Elizabeth's poetry, I often show them portraits of her, and they're so so iconic. And frequently, and and Queen Elizabeth, I mean, she was the reigning monarch of England for decades. And she was very, very careful about how she wanted her image to be presented to her people. She wanted to show strength, resolve, the wealth of England uh, and of its burgeoning empire. She wanted to show like certainty and sense of purpose and confidence. Um, And in many of her paintings you know you'll see she's facing us in the portrait right she's facing the viewer and anything that is to her back is tempestuous and cloudy and stormy and anything that she's looking upon is bright and radiant and and sunny (laughs) you know Um, and so they're very propagandistic portraits and they show her body as the body politic this notion that when English viewers looked at her portrait they saw the power of England right so not just her as an individual but her as a political entity as the representative of the empire
0: she is unmovable unflappable to look at a portrait of her to look at her in power is to see yourself stable secure all the iconography is to show her in a a state of complete control Mm. and then we get this poem
1: Yeah, it's and I think that's why students enjoy it. So readers in general have enjoyed it over the years. And we should say this is a poem that was never published in Queen Elizabeth's lifetime. Uh, It was found in her manuscripts after she died. There's some evidence that suggests that she might have written it in the early 1580s. And so we don't know how many people saw this poem. But what interests me about it is you know I just finished talking to you about how fixed and purposeful and strong she was in these portraits, how often in some of her speeches to her troops and to her counselors, she would say, think of me as a man, think of me as a prince, don't think of me as as womanly or weak, you know? And then there's this softness that's in this poem, but maybe we could say a little bit more about her context and her cultural moment.
0: Great. So just to get a sense of who Queen Elizabeth was, start here. Your dad murders your mom. Then your half-sister has you imprisoned. Then one of your cousins, Mary, Queen of Scots, seems to want your job and wants to become queen. And then another cousin, Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, wants you assassinated. Uh, And then one of your best and most loyal advisors, Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, stages a rebellion against you. That's, the, (laughs) you know, just in a nutshell, that's a little bit of what you're dealing with. So Queen Elizabeth was, uh, of course, the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. And this was the period when England is becoming Protestant, but kind of trying to decide for itself what it's going to be. And so that's a little bit about who Queen Elizabeth was. So who is she writing to in this poem?
1: (laughs) Numerous bits of circumstantial evidence suggest that she's writing this poem probably after the departure of the Duke of Anjou, and the Duke of Anjou was one of many suitors that tried to court Queen Elizabeth. She never married. She never had children. There's some evidence that suggests that perhaps this was her plan all along. She understood her vulnerability as a woman monarch. She understood... the dangers of foreign alliances. She was very savvy in her diplomacy, and that's really great for the history books. But I think one of the reasons that this poem is so interesting is because we get a sense of the cost of that very savvy strategy. You know, the kind of isolation that a monarch like this might feel, the need for autonomy, but also the need for companionship and, and what she has to sacrifice uh, for her nation.
0: Maybe that's a great way to just jump into the poem and see exactly what she's saying here. So the the poem, for those who don't have it in front of them, is, is divided into three stanzas. Uh, each data has six lines, so we call them a sestet and each has the same kind of rhyme scheme. So A, B, A, B, C, C is the first stanza, and that same kind of rhyme scheme repeats itself in each of the other two stanzas. Uh, We've talked uh, many times on this podcast before about how a stanza is a little room, and each stanza is accomplishing its own kind of task or setting up its own kind of room. So maybe we should just start with that first stanza and that first line, I grieve and dare not show my discontent. So what do you see happening in this first stanza?
1: I'm very interested in how much attention is being given to showing and seeming right so i grieve and dare not show my discontent i love and yet am forced to seem to hate i do yet dare not say i ever meant i seem stark mute but inwardly do prate i am and not i freeze and yet am burned since from myself another self i turned i'm so intrigued by appearances versus reality i'm very interested in selfhood and um, and what's behind the facade that she's created for herself? What, what do you see?
0: You know, I find it interesting that in this period... There is a great deal of thought going into interiority, selfhood, what it means to be a self, the fashioning of a self that others see versus the real self that's inside. And a lot of this is coming out of different religious contexts, poetic contexts, and so forth. Uh, this is the period in which English language begins for the first time to have the word sympathy. <laughs> um, and if you just think about what sympathy has it means, it, it means to to both know what another person is feeling and to be able to feel that yourself inside. So they called it a fellow-like feeling, but they didn't have a word for it until the late 1500s. So there's a great deal going on here with the development of what a self really is. uh, And this great opening stanza with the the seeming happening twice.
1: Yes, we all have those multiple selves, but a monarch has to have the multiple selves. The monarch has to have at least a dual body, a dual spirit, right? So the body politic is the stand-in for the nation. But then there's the bo- the body natural, the body, the one that we sort of all manage and live with in the world. And I love the way she is playing both sides of that in this first stanza.
0: I also love the way this stands, it reveals the limitations of power. That is, she's the most powerful person in the kingdom, and yet she's not able to show the way she really feels. Yes. <laughs> precisely because of her power, because of her position, she has to hide, and even she has to act in a certain way. So this is, you know, the reason why this marriage never happened is because the person who was wooing her was a French Catholic, <laughs> mm. and the people were not going to have it. There's there's this sense in which if she goes through with this marriage, there could be a rebellion. You even, in that second stanza, you get this this word suppressed. And she talks about, I mean, what she's talking about there is suppressing feelings that are in her breast. But that's that's a word that has a pretty strong political overtone to it, right? Like she might have to suppress a rebellion if she goes through with this marriage, right? Yeah. Uh, and so she's playing on both both sides of that right there.
1: The other thing to mention is that in stanza one, She sets up a Petrarchan contrast when she says, I freeze and yet am burned. Um, Any lover of Petrarch's poetry will hear something familiar there. Um, The poets of the English Renaissance were obsessed with Petrarch, and uh, he was an Italian Poet Francesco Petrarca He had written, you know 150 years earlier in the 1300s He was the innovator Of the sonnet form in Italian And by the time we get to the 1500s in England There are courtiers in The court of Henry VIII And then Queen Elizabeth That were all just obsessed With translating Petrarch's Italian poems into English And as they did, they encountered These contrasts, these extremes i freeze and yet i'm burned you're cruel but you're kind i feel like i'm floating i'm sinking so all of these extremes are meant to just give us a sense of how turbulent the poet's inner life are
0: that turbulence pulling off of petrarch also opens up the paradoxes that they love to play with and so in that third stanza and we'll get there in just a minute but be more cruel and so be kind. And so there's the, there's the, the, these wonderful paradoxes that if you could just you know shun me entirely, that would actually be the kindest thing that you could do for me. Mm. Uh, but this in between thing is both cruel and kind at the same time.
1: Oh, that's nice. And then she continues that in stanza two. Uh, Look at that first line in stanza two. My care is like my shadow in the sun. And so when she says my care, she doesn't mean my caring for others. She means the burden that I feel, right? The struggle inside me is like my shadow in the sun. Of course, I'm thinking of sun as monarch, you know? So she's yeah. always in the sun. She's like the sun to her court and to her people. But this this feeling that she has for this monsieur who has departed, it, it's a shadow in that sun. I, I'm really interested in that.
0: And then I just love the way that that metaphor, that image plays itself out. It follows me flying, flies when I pursue it. Again, this this wonderful paradox of if i I try to ignore this thing, it follows me around. But then if I try to pursue it, it flees away from me because Mm -hmm. I can't actually have it. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a wonderfully done metaphor for this thing that she both wants and can't have, uh, pursues, but can't reach. Uh, tries to ignore and leave behind, but then it, it won't leave her mind.
1: Of course, she knew, fainting I follow. She knew that the Petrarchan conceits of Thomas Wyatt and other poets of King Henry's court, she's picking up on those. And as I hear, you know, think about this second stanza, I'm thinking of a, a poem by Petrarch, uh, his Reem number 164. I am awake, I think, I burn, I weep, and she who destroys me is always before me, To my sweet pain, war is my state full of sorrow and suffering, and only thinking of her do I have any peace. So again, that extremity of feeling, she's definitely picking up on that.
0: And so she asks for a gentler passion, right? So as we move into the stanza three, we've got all the turbulence of the first two stanzas, and then she starts off by saying, some gentler passion slide into my mind, for I am soft and made of melting snow. What do you see happening in the final stanza here?
1: Gentler. When we hear that in the 21st century, we think softer, milder, maybe kinder. Uh, But that word gentle also is the same word that's in "gentlemen." So she's looking for something more civil, more courtly, more appropriate perhaps to her position, you know? Um, she feels undone by this. She feels like it's, it's lowering her. And she, I think she wants to be elevated again, no?
0: Yeah, and then she moves into these great uh, repetition of the word or. Or be more cruel, love, and so be kind. Let me or float or sink, be high or low, or... Let me live with some <laughs> more sweet content or die and so forget what love air man, right? I mean, it's great because she's trying to resolve the turbulence. And yet I feel like there's a comp- almost like a complete loss of control by the poet, like This or this, either way. Oh, this or this, maybe over here. The turbulence almost becomes more extreme in the very desire to resolve it uh, by the end of this poem.
1: What you just did with your voice and the way you read that final stanza was terrific because I think you were emphasizing the dramatic import of this poem. You could imagine this being a kind of soliloquy on the stage and you could imagine each of those oars being a gesticulation or a turning of the body or a shifting of the face or the head right and there's something performative there that does feel like clearly the language is representative of how overwhelmed and chaotic she's feeling you know because she's trying to give so many options either do this or or this, or this, or this. And she's almost out of breath as she says it. And I, I like how theatrical that is. And it goes back to, again, this notion of her as both monarch who has to perform and as individual who's suffering.
0: You know, just to touch on the the use of repetition in this poem, we see how effective it is here in the final stanza with Or. Hmm. But just to make sure that listeners hear the I in that first stanza. So we move from a stanza filled with I to end on a stanza filled with or. <laughs> mm. uh, and that's not by accident. So the I becomes this either or, this this thing caught in between. And the opening stanza, I grieve, I love, I do, I seem, I yeah. am and not. I freeze, I turned, right? So this yeah. I, 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 and then becomes or this, or this, or this, or this by the end. And what other way that the last stanza kind of echoes or turns us back to that first stanza, is the final rhyme of the poem, content and meant, is the first rhyme of the poem, discontent and meant. And so the discontent is trying to be a more sweet content by the end. And either way, what we're dealing with is what was meant. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so so the, the, the poem kind of loops back on itself in that way.
1: What a well-made poem. It's just it's amazing what she's doing here. She, just the, the range of expression is, is very nice. Would you be willing to read this poem now that we've discussed it?
0: Absolutely. On Manjou's Departure. I grieve and dare not show my discontent. I love and yet am forced to seem to hate. I do, yet dare not say I ever meant... I seem stark mute, but inwardly do prate. I am and not. I freeze and yet am burned, since from myself, another self, I turned. My care is like my shadow in the sun, follows me flying, flies when I pursue it, stands and lies by me, doth what I have done. His too familiar care doth make me rue it. No means I find to rid him from my breast till by the end of things it be suppressed. Some gentler passion slide into my mind, for I am soft and made of melting snow. Or be more cruel, love, and so be kind. Let me or float or sink, be high or low, or let me live with some more sweet content. Or die, and so forget what love e'er meant.
1: Wow, that was a good reading. I love that. (laughs) It's so dramatic. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Thank you. To learn more about Queen Elizabeth uh, and her cultural moment, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm.
0: And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.
1: Thank you for listening.